Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And today we're going to delve into the uh, latest round of books on regional cuisines. Um, the first up being a, re- a really kind of fresh look at new Spanish. And by new, it's like what the, the um, authors actually kind of created themselves, right? This, this, this is new, new Spanish. As yeah, opposed new, to new, 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 new. Right. As opposed to new Spanish, right? Yes. Okay. What, what are the guys' names again? Uh, Jonah Miller and Nate Adler. And they've written, I don't know how many books, we've interviewed them, I don't know how many times. They have a regular re- production team going there. Good. A good, writer good. and a chef. Hmm? And, and, and they cook too. Well, that's what I just said. Oh, okay. All right. I didn't, didn't, a writer and a didn't, chef. Didn't quite understand it that way. But you're right, you're right, of course. So anyway, here's, here are the guys. I'm happy just looking at this book, Jonah Miller and Nate Adler. Uh, the new Spanish subtitle, Bites, Feasts, and Drinks. From a restaurant in, uh, where are you exactly in New York? We're, uh, we're in the East Village on 1st Avenue between 6th and 7th Street. Okay, and it, it, your restaurant is called Huertas, and how long has it been open? It's been open uh, just over four years. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, it looks like fun. <laughs> we hope so, yeah. We hope the restaurant and the book uh, both strike guests and, and readers as fun before anything else. Yeah. Now, um, you, you do a lot. You're not exactly trying to be authentic in this book, um, which is a good thing. You're very inventive and playful in this book. Uh, I mean, I I have spent a lot of time in Spain, and I never had Spanish kimchi. <laughs> yeah, this, this is uh, John speaking, and I think yeah, the Spanish kimchi is perhaps the the, the least authentic, but certainly does taste Spanish. It's made from Spanish ingredients, and and for us, it's all about trying to find that that balance between uh, you know connecting Spain with the uh, way that we like to eat in New York and that restaurant goers sort of uh, you know more familiar with here, and finding a happy medium. Yeah, one one of the things you don't do is serve quite so late, right? <laughs> True. I mean, yeah. we, 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 uh, we've gone to bed hungry. We'd like to do a lot more business on the earlier side. Uh-huh. Um, the, um, this is unusual in another manner is for a Spanish cookbook to give as much attention as you give to vegetables. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's a good example of, of how we wanted to kind of update and, and treat Spanish cooking. It's, uh, you know, you being, Having gone to Spain, I'm sure you've seen, like, so many countries, the markets are, are great and have you know, all the vegetables under the sun, but when you go to restaurants, you find very few of them available, and when they are cooked, they're often fried and, um, you know, sort of hidden under layers of cured meat. Um, so for us, it's important to, to try to take some of those Spanish classics but lighten them, and even, you know, things as simple as salads in Spain often, you know, are kind of dense and, and um, laden with canned fish and, and hard-boiled eggs, and the vegetables are almost an afterthought. So we, we wanted to flip the script in that way. Now, you, you do have the inf- infamous Russian salad. 
Oh, yeah. I asked Anya von Brubsman about that, and she said she had no idea what the origin was. Well, I do think that there's uh, a story that I'm familiar with that there was a, uh, in France, a chef who made it who was of Russian descent, and it's interesting in, uh, in Russia they actually call a very similar salad, Olivier, named after the, the restaurant in France that started serving it. So whatever the story, it's really ubiquitous in Spain more than anywhere else at this point, and, and not the lightest vegetable application in the book. Right. <laughs> not not hardly. <laughs> no. Um. The the what is this uh, green onion? It's sort of the equivalent of ramps in a way where they have festivals around it. Right. The calsas. Mm-hmm. It's called calsotada. Right. Right. That's the calsotada is the uh, the festival to celebrate those overwintered uh, onions. Yeah, that's a, a funny concept. It reminds me of the. The Nordic, new Nordic, um, carrot that stays in the ground for five years or whatever it is. I never could understand why it didn't rot. Yeah, I mean, I imagine it must have been an accident first, but then there's sort of a, uh, intensity of the, the quality of having something, you know, stay buried for an extra four or five months. And Calcutta is actually one of the ways I sort of first discovered Spanish food before I'd been to Spain, a restaurant called Savoy, which is now sadly closed that I'd worked at growing up um, in Soho in New York. Every summer they'd throw a calcitata on the, the street behind the restaurant and set up a grill and, and do the same thing as you'd find in uh, in Catalonia, burning the onions and, and drinking from a, uh, a, a Perone yes. uh, with sausage <laughs> on the grill. It's, yeah, great, a great party for sure. Yeah, they, they're good at these parties, aren't they? That That is the Spanish specialty, uh Having a good time for sure. We we had a we did a piece um, for the tourist board in, on Valencia, and I'll tell you, it was really a riot. All the festivals that we came across. You know, when I was uh, last in Spain, or the time before, my my wife accused me of uh, you know hitting every timing our trips that we hit every festival and market day <laughs> along the way. But you're, you're bound to run into a few if you uh, if you look. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, in, in Valencia, the Mercado Central, yeah. it's, it's, uh-huh. so, it's so amazing. You could eat off the floor. Yeah, always so, so clean. Yeah, so, no, amazing, I, so amazing. Yeah, that's clean. A, a beautiful market for sure. It's one of my one of my favorites in Spain. And we and we. Wait, did, what was the one that were was it the snails that were crawling oh, away? Oh yeah, that, that was in Valencia. <laughs> <laughs> the snails were attempting a breakout. <laughs> and what was the thing they hit over the head? What was that? It was a live thing? Oh, there the, were eels. Oh, the eels. Yeah, they, <laughs> you buy your eel and it's live, and they right in front of you they smash his head. Like you said, against the counter. <laughs> fresh. Yeah, exactly. He's fresh and only only recently dead. <laughs> now you give credit, which I don't know that Americans realize. Uh, I think that Spain produces probably the best jarred and tinned. Uh, ingredients in the world. <laughs> I really yeah, think they, you're fabulous. I mentioned that in the book. I know, I said that. Especially, I the, sea, especially the seafood. The seafood, I mean, you know, uh, we go nuts over that. And I get, There's somebody who shows up at the uh, Star Chefs thing. Well, I can't remember the company that has all yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a couple uh, that are really terrific uh, that are available here, like Ortiz and Don Bocarte. It was Ortiz, yes. 
you know, Ortiz is one of the more famous ones, but it's certainly, you know, a really easy way to entertain is to just buy things that are delicious, like, like canned fish, and, and open the cans. And in Spain, you know, at a bar, they would literally just pass you a can and a toothpick. Um, you know, we have some suggestions to dress it up minimally, but, uh, you know, once you kind of get over the hurdle that Americans sometimes have that canned fish and tuna fish is, you know, by nature, uh, worse than the fresh thing, once you realize that it's just a distinct and, and delicious uh, counterpoint, you know, it really is a, a, a good tool for entertaining. Now, are, are you recommending in this book that that we should start uh, smoking and, and fermenting in our kitchens, uh, the home cook? Well, I think, you know, it, it's sometimes a lot to ask the home cook to do all of that. But, uh, you know, some, some methods of preservation and, and conservation are really quite simple. I mean, there's pickling that's, know, very, um, you know, easy to, to attempt at home. Um, and while we don't necessarily, like, can and pressure can fish in the restaurant, there are ways to preserve fish and salt it and confit it that, that are quite simple and, and, you know, again, are a good way to do the work before your guests actually arrive. Yeah, now, uh, I have never had as much Spanish food as I've eaten. I've never had eggplant with honey. That's uh, that's pretty classic, actually. Yeah, that's but what you say. In the in the uh, the north, you see that more in the south. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, one difference, you know, a good example of again trying to lighten something is in Spain, it's usually breaded uh, or battered and then fried uh, and then drizzled liberally with honey. So um, you know, we, we've taken the the bat off of it, and aside from that, it's pretty classic uh, version of the dish. Yeah, I don't know why I never, I'm probably, I would never have ordered it. That's the other thing. Now, you devote uh, some space here and some ink to, um, drinks. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, especially the red, sure. wine, especially the red wine with Coca-Cola. Yeah, that was really, yeah. I'm sorry, I tried to think about that. I couldn't. <laughs> yeah, so, I too, and this is me speaking, uh, I too, uh, was sort of surprised or even flabbergasted that anybody would want to drink red wine and Coca-Cola together. Um, and I go back to this story that I've told at the restaurant time and time again about uh, how we came up with our drink program here. Um, we initially opened this restaurant without a full liquor license, so we only had access to beer and wine, and we were forced to innovate with that. Um, and on my trips through Spain, I recognize that the culture of drinking there is such that people want to drink all day long. They have drinks at lunch, they have drinks in the midday, they have drinks at dinner. And so they drink, uh, I think, mainly because of flavor and, and the feeling of it more so than they do about getting the buzz. And so in order to not uh, get a buzz and be able to go back to work, um, or maybe that's why they take siestas, you know. <laughs> yeah, I guess um, so. They mix uh, low-alcoholic drinks like wine and beer uh, and cherry with soda. Um, and one of the most classic, believe it or not, is a drink called Salimocho, um, which I discovered when I was in San Sebastian. Uh, I was staying uh, at an Airbnb, and the host family um, took me out to an event called Pincho Pote, and 
The chipotle just means a drink and a snack, but it happens every uh, Tuesday and Thursday in San Sebastian in the summers when uh, spring and summer when the the bars open themselves up to the community, and for two euros you can get a pincho, which is a small bite and a small drink. Um, and when I was going out with this with this couple, this uh, couple from Spain. They said, you gotta try Calimocho. It's the, the vast sort of national drink. And I was like, what, what is that? And it's red wine and Coca-Cola. I'm like, there's no <laughs> way I'm gonna drink that. Uh, I'm, I come from, you know, New York sensibilities and I've been in restaurants for <laughs> four years, uh, as a beverage director drinking great wine and great beer. And even if it's not great wine and beer, I'm not gonna mix it with Coca-Cola. So, I was very surprised that that was a tradition, and when I tried it, I actually fell in love. It's, it's sort of like a uh, poor man sangria that you can make on the spot. Um, take any red wine, take a bottle of Coca-Cola, and mix them together with a little bit of lemon juice, and uh, we add bitters to it to, to kick it up a notch, and uh, it's delicious. Pour it over, over ice and sit back at the beach uh, with the Calimocho. Now, interestingly enough, the story goes that George Perrier from Le, from Le Pommier in Philadelphia had had a wealthy yeah, guest. Had a wealthy, wealthy Lebec guest. Fan. Oh, Lebec fan. Sorry, Lebec fan. He had a, a very wealthy patron came in for dinner, ordered one of the best red wines on the menu, and said, "I'd like to have this with Coca Cola, please." <laughs> and, and George didn't turn a hair. <laughs> he wouldn't. And the next time the guest came back, he served him the same thing without asking. Now, we, we did observe something interesting. Oh, I was one, wondering if you remember one, that. One time when we were in Barcelona, we were in a restaurant called Casa Doro, I remember the name, and there was a, clearly a businessman on a short lunch time who came in just when something was appearing out of the kitchen. But he was drinking gin and Coke. Yes. And they, and they, and they put the <laughs> bottle of gin on the table, and he just helped himself. And, and, we, and we wondered what was going to happen when he settled his bill. Yeah, how did they <laughs> how, calculate how would, that? How would they how would they figure out how much he owed? Well, they uh, that's a mystery throughout Spain when they you know pass you pinchero <laughs> <across laughs> bill. Somehow they know at the end uh, what the bill is, or everything is inexpensive enough that it doesn't quite matter exactly what you've had, but uh, rather you've had a good time. But, and the, the other thing I didn't know now, Anne said she knew this. The national drink of Spain. Oh, it's gin and tonic. Gin, gin and tonic? Just about. Oh, yeah. Oh, they're the so, largest gin and tonic consumers in Europe, I think. I mean, it's an amazing phenomenon in Spain. Uh, it's really the only quote-unquote cocktail that they drink. Um, and that was a bit of a struggle for us. Uh, once we got our liquor license, you know, other than the gin and tonic, what are we going to produce, what are we going to make for our guests here that feels Spanish enough. Um, but if you go to Spain, it is unbelievable how many restaurants and bars advertise that they have a gin tonic bar and they have oh, yeah, gin tonic. 20, 20 different types of gin and 20 different types of tonic. tonics and garnishes and combinations and it's like for, for an American living uh, in an an urban environment where mixology and cocktail culture is such a big thing, 
um, something that we definitely would scoff at. But what I would say is, uh, in my, uh, as I've grown older, the gin and tonic is really just one of the best cocktails there, there is in the world. Um, it quenches the thirst in a way that really nothing else does, and it's so simple. And so, uh, in Spain, where the climate is, is quite moderate all year round, and if not quite hot in the south, um, it makes a lot of sense that the gin tonic became such a big thing. Um, also couple on the fact that there was trade between England and Spain. So that was um, that, a lot probably. Of, yeah, a yeah. lot of the sailors would, you know, they would bring over gin, um, and it just became the national drink. Um, and uh, I don't think you can judge them for that. It's better to be simple than it is yeah. to be overwrought yeah. with crazy cocktail ingredients all the time, like like you oh, are in a, in an American city. And then we have a, a, a local, he was sort of as a chef, and now he's certified at some level sommelier. And uh, he, he's so enraptured with gin, he made, he invented his own formula and makes it. So um, I'm not as yeah, well, afraid of that. But we, make our own, we make our own tonic syrup. Yeah, I'm just looking here at this page. How yeah. would you describe this graphic style, which is so happy-making? You're, I'm looking at the page with the a recipe for your tonic syrup. Uh, we really set on a mission uh, in writing this cookbook for it to be just as fun to page through from a design and aesthetic standpoint as it was to read the recipes um, and cook the recipes at home. And we really wanted to make it a multi-media cookbook in the sense that uh, there was going to be this beautiful exchange between photography, graphic design, and illustration. And one of the uh, one of the ideas that we had early on, or one of the, the sort of concepts for, for the design of the book, was that the photography was really going to act as a backdrop, uh, almost as a wallpaper, um, and the illustration was going to be. The, the source of, of real sort of uh, fun and energy and style. Um, and there were a couple of uh, ideas that we had that we integrated into the book, like if you look at the gin tonic spread or you look at the chocolina spread or the, the sherry one, uh, we took this idea of the, you know, old school 19, uh, mid-century um, advertisements for spirits like Campari or Aperol or things of that nature and the posters um, that you, you know, you used to see everywhere uh, that represent those brands and how could we uh, bring that into the book in a way where we could pair beverage with food throughout the entire, the entirety of the, of the book. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I, I think it just gives us, Big boost to the whole spirit of the book with these spreads. And I kept thinking as I'm looking, leafing through the book, I kept thinking how much fun your team had working together on this. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that inspired us to, to have a Spanish restaurant in the first place is unlike some other, you know, food movements in the last 20 years, the sort of influence that Spain has had, it's clear that the chefs there 
uh, are being very playful and not taking themselves too seriously. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, that's to try to environment we create, try to create in the restaurant. And as Nate said, wanted to, the book to feel that way as well. And certainly it was fun for us, uh, working with, uh, Hugo, the, our illustrator and, yes. and Phil, who designed it and, and Ram, the photographer, you know, trying to, that all together in a way that was was coherent. Well, I mean, I, you certainly work. My my favorite illustration, however, is this rabbit on a carrot. <laughs> he appears occasionally throughout the book, um, and it, it like what's your Especially we're having trouble with rabbits right now. Yeah, they're eating our. They like parsley. I've discovered only the leaves. And what else did they like? They like the. Something they like basil too. Basil, unfortunately. They don't, they don't like rosemary. Too crunchy. Well, I I think that you accomplished what you set out to do in this, and it was the the bright spot in my day when I could pick up the book and and look at it. I must say. And, and, well, and, thank you, thank you so much. That's a terrific uh, so compliment. Well, we hope other people pick it up and have that same uh, reaction and fun as you have. Well, I can't wait to come into your restaurant too. So, and save a gilda for me. Yeah, <laughs> <Or> several, <laughs> several gildas. <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much for talking to us, and uh, I will yeah, say hello right. or hola to uh, España next week. <laughs> Please enjoy your uh, great. Enjoy your trip. Thank you. Gildas will be plentiful, I'm sure. Oh well, I, I. I Never get over how much hamon I get to eat when I'm in Spain. <laughs> you yeah, almost get tired of it. There's so much. Oh, but. one thing we should we shouldn't forget. Do, are you aware that there's a farmer in Georgia who's breeding? We uh, who's we are aware. Actually, I know exactly where you're going with this, and uh, we just put some of their cured Iberico Americano on our menu last oh, week. Great. Oh, great! Um, and so you're dealing with uh, Will Harris. Kurt, who, yeah, Kurt is the, the grandson of the um, Spaniard whose pigs came over and went to uh, White Oak, uh, the farm, correct? Uh, right, exactly. exactly. That's yes, it. Yes, That's yes, it. Yes, yes. Yeah, good products. We loved it. You know, he's he's yeah. he's using La Quecha as his right. and as, we know, yeah, as well, a smokehouse uh, right now. Yeah, we've interviewed them too. Quercia, so it's been a, it's been cool to taste what they've been doing. Interesting because Herb's background is mostly an Italian style cured meat, so they're they're doing some Italian style cuts like pancetta and copa, but using Iberico pig. So yeah, we had some of that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you made the connection already because it's it's really something. Okay. Bye. All right. <laughs> well, nice you, uh, enjoy okay. your trip. Thank you, and hope to see All you right. sometime. And we'll be back, so don't go away. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Next up, Catherine Bjork, a, a change in location. We're, we're now talking about from the north, and uh, that is what 
country would that be? <laughs> Well, I think well, I think it's Iceland, but I'm not yeah, sure. It is. Yeah. Anyhow, um, yes, uh, Catherine, you're, you're up now. Um, for those of you that we've interviewed, I, I want to say we've been a little backed up in content because there've been so many media events that we have to cover and report on. And uh, so, but anyhow, you're finally on, Catherine, and uh, you had good things to say. I'd love particularly the name of your website, modernwifestyle.com. I love it. Okay, let's get it uh, right out front there for our listeners. The national dish of Iceland is not ice cream. (laughs) Catherine, what is it? I would say any kind of fish. And lamb. Yeah, lamb. You have wonderful... Lamb recipes. And, and skis, I would say. What? Skis, which I guess... What is that? I was going to ask you. What is it? Yeah. It would probably say skier, you would might want to pronounce it, but it's actually pronounced skis, and it is um, referred to as yogurt, but it's actually more related to cheese, but eaten traditionally unflavored with fresh berries and a splash of heavy cream. Oh, wow. You have a lot of uh, uh, recipes in the book. Let's, let, let's get that up front now. The, the name of the book is From the North, and we're talking to Katrin Bjork. And, you know, it's a simple and modern approach to authentic Nordic cooking. I'm surprised I haven't gotten more books. Um, you, you're mainly talking about Icelandic food. But with the all the the hullabaloo with New Nordic from uh, Rene Recepi, I'm surprised there haven't been more cookbooks on this subject. Yes, that is correct. There are few books out there, few recent books, but they're mainly written by chefs and often by our Michelin star chefs. That's and those true. books can often be a little complicated for for the home cook, and that's also I was intrigued to to write a book, a, a home cook to another, and, and try to take it down a notch and, and make things as simple as possible. And, and even though traditional Icelandic cooking is very simple in itself, I, you know, somewhere I tried to elevate it in some of the recipes. I mixed some of the recipes I grew up with together into one to create more of a interesting dish. Um, but yes, you're right. There's there's not a lot out there, and what is out there is is by chefs. So so I think my book, at least written in English for for English speaking audience, um, I think my book is one of the first ones to to come out. Well, let, let's be fairly straightforward about it. There aren't a whole lot of Icelanders, are there? No, <laughs> we are only three hundred sixty thousand people. There's not a lot of people who write books. Huh? That's it. Three hundred sixty thousand. Most famous thing I remember about Iceland: supposedly, Iceland had the very first parliament. Yes, we did. We also had the first female president of the world in the world. Really? In 1980, yes, we did. We also had the first um, homosexual prime minister. Oh yeah, openly gay prime minister, right? Yes, yes. So we are um, we are liberal and <laughs> and uh, yeah. Well, now this book that you wrote, um, you, it's written for the home cook, which is a difference because nobody's going to be tackling 
uh, Rene Recepi or um, uh, who's the, the Swedish guy that with the gorgeous hair? What's his name? She always asks me the handsome guy's names. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's perfect, perfectly clear she's not paying the slightest bit of attention to me. Uh, so, but he, oh, yeah, he's good. But anyhow, I mean, there's no way you could ever make any of these things that they make. I mean, I don't even understand. I like this special carrot that Rene Recepi makes that stays in the ground for five years or whatever it is. <laughs> Why was it? I know. It? The, the, their books are complicated, but they're fascinating. And I, I never, I admit it, I, I never cook from them either. I own them all. But yeah, I me read too. them. I read them as literature, in, but not as necessarily yeah. as cookbooks or something I aspire to cook from, but to learn from and to look at. They're always beautiful and and inspiring to me. Yeah. Now, beautiful. Uh, you, you actually. Well, you, you were most famous for your blog, uh, which, yes. which is your blog, your um, web page, the Modern yes. Wifestyle dot com. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But you also, you're a photographer, and and did you do all this photography in this book, which is gorgeous? I did. So I, I wrote all the recipes and I took the pictures and styled them. I, it, this, making this book, um, the content for this book was a, a one woman show. Um, I spent a whole last summer cooking and, and shooting this book. And, um, yeah, so I am a photographer and my blog, I'm a photographer. I've been a photographer since the early 2000s for a very long time. And then my blog, came out of that i i didn't have a whole lot to do i was um you know the pro i didn't have a lot of projects so i started photographing the food i was cooking for my family for my friends and then the blog happened from that and i opened that in 2011 and then i moved to the united states uh two years ago and uh this book deal landed in my lap and i thought why not yeah why not yeah, well, you to just explain a little bit. You were born and raised in Iceland, and you lived and uh, in Denmark, married a Dane, and yes. then relocated to um, up, upstate New York. Was it? Yes, that, yes. Yes. Correct. Correct. So, anyhow, so you have all that experience involved, and as you said, these are um, a lot of these are uh, childhood memories. Of Icelandic foods, but you also throw in some um, Swedish and some uh, Danish, and you've updated your recipes. And I loved when you said you actually wrote the book uh, and cooked and tested the recipes in the kitchen in the house where you grew up. I did. I did. It was really important to me to go home. I felt that I couldn't make this book or I felt I couldn't be an authentic voice without going home and without, you know, talking to my mom and flipping through her old recipe book and, you know, go through my grandma's pantry and, you know, to to kind of feel it and go back. Because I've been away for so long, mm-hmm. um, even though my family is still there. And so I shot, um, yeah, a really big part of this book was made at home, um, cooked in my, in, my, um, in my mom's kitchen and... You know, shot out on her balcony outdoors. It was uh, really kind of homemade and far from fancy photo shoots for this yeah. book. 
Well, the, I think the reader um, of this cookbook will immediately get the sense that everything in it is honest. I had that feeling. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I was telling you there are recipes I'm actually going to try. You, you've introduced ideas for ingredients that I tend to have a lot of and don't have recipes for, like <laughs> fried chive blossoms. Who would have thought? Yes, and they are so, they're beautiful. Oh, they're gorgeous. They are Look at this. Such a fun snack to, to serve for a guest as an appetizer or, you know, at cocktail hour. And it's the easiest thing in the world to do in, in springtime. We all have, or, you know, those of us who have a garden, we, we have chives out there and their beautiful blossoms have to be used. Right. And then, you know, I throw them under salads, but that doesn't even begin to take enough of them away, you know, and you need to have them <laughs> produce more uh, food out of them. Um, the, right. Uh, another one is your blistered radishes. I, I gave cooking radishes one go, and it was a failure, but I can't remember why. Yeah, I, ne- I, I saw that. I never, th- I never thought about cooking radishes. I did, oh, I've read it I mean, obviously we, obviously, we cooked the leaves a lot. And, uh, right. I, I, I'm, the, I'm the guy who picks, picks over all the radish bunches <laughs> Whole Foods to find to find ones that have the leaves that are actually extant, not rotten. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and frequently they have them. I, I, I don't trust anybody else. Yep. Right, right. And yeah. So for me, because radishes was something um, when you're a kid in Iceland, or when I was a kid growing up there, um, I would attend instead of at, uh, attending summer camp, I attended this community garden program for kids and we would grow potatoes um, carrots and radishes and my mom never used them for anything except she would we would just eat them raw you know kind of like snacking on a carrot Um, so I wanted to try and see if I could do something with them and you know I tried different things and and these blistered radishes they came up beautifully they still have that peppery flavor that radishes have and they still have bite to them but then they get kind of crusty from being, you know, blistered on on a hot pan. I really recommend them. They're they're delicious. We're we're going to have those, Robert. I mean, I, I really okay, yeah, yeah. zoomed right in on those. The other thing is, we have um, Peter is a beet addict, and we yeah, always I was, have. I was going to move on to that because Catherine loves beets. Yeah, well, so, sometimes only for I the do. sometimes only for the coloring. Yeah, well, they're they're <laughs> wonderful. We always have them in. in as a staple in our fridge. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. but after a while, you think of other things to do with them. I started um, putting them, uh, growing up, I guess we had uh, vinegar and olive oil with them, uh, Italian mm-hmm. style, I guess. Um, and then I found a, a reference to putting za'atar on them, which we loved. So oh, I did the vinegar, but the za'atar adds another dimension. You put, and I want to ask you to talk to me about licorice. Uh, yeah, that is, you say, a very um, it's a, a very uh, Icelandic flavor. Um, but you use powdered licorice. I mean, where where does this penchant for uh, licorice come from in Iceland? I mean, most of the licorice comes from um, Abruzzo in, in southern Italy. Right. Yes, correct. Yeah. Um, so the licorice flavor comes to Iceland. I'm not exactly sure when. My guess would be 
you know, with sailors, they got that what they called apothecary licorice, which is this, like, black sticks of licorice that came in and people would chew on. Then later, that was, um, you know, people started making sweet licorice and then salty licorice, and they would pair it with chocolate. So licorice has, in Iceland, you basically cannot buy sweets without there being licorice in really? it somehow. Mm-hmm. That? So that is, yeah, so that is also why I wanted to use licorice with savory. Some, You know, there's also licorice ice cream in the book, which is delicious right. too, but I wanted to push it. I wanted to make something savory and use licorice. So, but for me, since licorice goes with something sweet, I decided to use the beets. So it's not super far from being um, candy. Now, do, do they do they sell a, a dish called licorice all sorts in in, 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 in Iceland? I mean that that's 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 the generic name for sweets that have candy that, that has licorice sheets in it in in, in oh. England. In England. Oh, and, I didn't know that. And there's Interesting. A, there's another version which is smaller. They call hundreds and thousands. Because I guess you, you you get a lot of them in a pound of candy. <laughs> but, but, but here's a piece of information you would never have come across. I don't think Queen Elizabeth II of England has a standing order for licorice from the from Calabria, Calabria. from a town yeah, called not a Calabria. I Calabria. In, in, in oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, and apparently she loves it. And it's, wow. it's, the, it's licorice root. It's not in a sweet. No, 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 she is a sweetened. She, she is likes it sweetened? I think it's the sweetened stuff she likes. Oh, yeah. Well, it comes, yeah. though, from the roots that they grow there. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. but they squeeze it out, first of all. Too. Mm-hmm. And that's, right. that's what happens in Iceland, too, right? It, yeah, so they, it's, it's, it's usually sweetened and then with salt, too. So it's not okay. sweet, sweet. It's like slightly salty. And usually covered with chocolate or paired with chocolate of some sort, milk chocolate. Yes. There's a place in East Yorkshire called Pontefract. 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 They make what are called licorice cakes, mm. which which looks sort of a little bit like currency because they're, sort of squ- <laughs> they're sort of squashed on one side. So, so they're right. sort, of, sort of like an embossed castle, probably Pontefract oh. castle on, on, one, on one side and then it's flat on the other side. Yeah, now we've been talking a lot about vegetables and fruits. Probably the least um, broad of the uh, available ingredients <laughs> in Iceland. <laughs> um, but um, let's talk a little bit about your different sections of your book, how it's organized. Uh, the, yeah. All the from the you have the from the sea, which is mm-hmm. obvious, isn't it? Um, and and then you have from the heath. Which yeah. is meat, meat, game, and fowl. And um, you had, uh, was it your grandfather was a hunter? Somebody was a hunter. So it- My father was a hunter. So my, I grew up, um, my, my paternal grandfather was a fisherman. And then my maternal grandmother, is a, she's still alive. She's 94 and she's a farmer. And, and then my father was a hunter. So I grew up eating game fresh lamb from the farm and fresh fish from my grandpa and and a lot of people grew and still grow up that way in Iceland it's such a small community and usually there is a fisherman in a family or a farmer so people Uh we grow up eating really pure and and fresh produce Um, so I wanted to try to include that 
in the book. Well, you have really intriguing lamb recipes, actually. Um, and, and reindeer tartare. Yes. I, you know, and I say to everyone, a lot of people mention the reindeer. A lot of people are, you know, people, they hear reindeer and they think about Rudolph and they You're think right. this is some it's kind of like, a... <laughs> it's like uh, Bambi burgers and stuff like that, too. Yeah, yeah. that I'm an animal torture somehow. By, but, um, but you can use any type of game. You can even use beef for these tatar. But they are... But to use game for tatar is such interesting thing. I mean, let me say this. If you don't like beef tatar, you're not going to like reindeer tatar. That's for sure. Right, right. No, right. I understand. Well, you know, I mean, I, 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 too, had a lot of hunters in the family growing up. And uh, so uh, it was very normal for me to see a whole deer hung swinging in a, off a line in the basement, you know. But I couldn't get over what it costs to go buying this stuff, like venison and stuff, if you didn't have hunters in the family. Right. So I think we right. got, we sort of backed off of, of trying to source it because it was so expensive. Yeah. I mean, correct. of course, all it of your game, your game stuff is, I mean, um, geese, geese is, you know, incredibly expensive anymore. Although Peter makes a really mean goose, Christmas goose. Yeah, but I, I still I still like the guys in South Dakota who grew the goose. Oh yeah. And and, and then <laughs> and then, then packaged it all up ready to ship and sent it to us and all we had to do was open it and cook it. Oh wow. <laughs> that, 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 that it was, was great. That was better. Yeah, who was that, that? That was a better way to deal with goose. Yeah, that was yeah. good. They they started yeah, out, so they started out with a farm in Iowa. But apparently geese like a lot of room to run around. Mm-hmm. So they so they found a, a farm property that was large enough in South Dakota and took to growing it there. Spectacular. Yeah. So um, I had never heard of this game bird, ptarmigan. Right. Yes. So the reason I decided I, I debated that recipe for for a long time because it is it's really hard to to find if you don't live in either Iceland or Ireland or Alaska, maybe. Um, but it, but you could use any type. So I just wanted to include it because it is so special in Iceland. This is a holiday dinner for probably third of the, of the population. And it's, it's so, such a special bird. So I wanted to include it somehow. But I, I do say in the recipe, you know, you're probably not going to find this bird, but Use something else, you know, any type of game or bird. You know, you could even use a chicken. The interesting thing about this recipe is that I'm using vanilla. And, right. Um, and to use vanilla with meat is is a really yeah, fun thing and a surprising flavor. Yeah, I'm used to it with seafood and vanilla, like lobster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. but not with the game meats. <laughs> Boy, does this look good, this roasted goose. Um, it, we could go on and on and on, but we have to, <laughs> I, I wanted to get one more thing in: is that um, you have an incredible um, sense of of baking um, bread, sourdough breads, so the people enjoy that. Uh, they'll enjoy the preserved, um, the preserving techniques that you feature, and also there's a huge, not huge, but there is an extensive um, s- chapter 
on dessert, so you must have the yeah. sweet tooth. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, there has to be a dessert because I also wanted this book, I want people to be able to mix and match and, you know, pick one thing and serve it as a starter and another as a main course and then a dessert or, or you know, pick three things and serve them all at once as a smorgasbord, you know. So I wanted this book to be versatile and I... I talked for a long time with my editor about if we should have desserts or not, and I really pushed for it because I think, you know, we all love desserts, and something sweet after a meal is um, such a wonderful thing. And so I really wanted to, to include that, and especially because there's a lot of Icelandic things and Nordic things that are so special, like the Icelandic skir cake, which is most related to a cheesecake. Yes. It's just somehow lighter and fresher and fluffier and there is a blueberry soup which is um interesting too and um simple apple porridge and licorice ice cream um but all my desserts are um they're pretty far from let's say traditional uh, american desserts traditional american desserts are very sweet they're very heavy on the sugar mine are not i try to keep my desserts light and i like to use berries and sour flavors to to kind of give freshness to the palate instead of just heavy sweetness. Well, I I think that this is a a book that will be not just read, but will be actually cooked from. And and I congratulate you, Catherine Bjork. And listeners, it's from the north, and I think you'll have your eyes open to all kinds of new possibilities with this book. Uh, thank you very much for the book, Catherine, and also well, thank th- you for yeah. having me. And, thank uh, you, and also for your website. Yes, Mod- modernwifestyle.com. modernwifestyle dot com, and it's for wives of either sex. I understand. It's what? <laughs> That's right. It's for wives of either sex. <laughs> yep, absolutely. <laughs> I, I still struggle with it, Karen. I have to, tell Catherine. I, I still struggle with it. <laughs> okay. Well, good we, luck with we, your book. We should let it go before anybody thinks I'm a real bigot. <laughs> that wasn't the word Thank I was you thinking. Thank so much for having us. For yeah. having me. Yeah, Catherine. Bye bye. Bye. Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station. www.aspstation.net And we're in an interesting situation. We're coming back to the United States in a way because um, the restaurant, Tannerine, is in Brooklyn. Um, however, it's actually the chef owner, Rawia Bishara, celebrates her native Nazareth cuisine. And on the other hand, she introduces cuisines from all over the world. So it's sort of a pan Whatever. <laughs> Some, pan, a pan something. Yeah, and uh, uh, th- I can tell you this, the recipes are yummy. So here we have Rawia Bishawa and her book, Levant. Rawia Bishara, 
we interviewed you for your first book, which you say was like about three years ago. Yes, ma'am. And uh, it was called... It was with lemon. Olives, lemon, and za'atar. And za'atar. Um, and what I remember about it uh, was that it, it introduced us to traditional cooking. Um, Palestinian cooking. Palestinian cooking. And it was something that I I didn't know anything about. I mean, you don't yeah. really... So you, you then came to this country, and um, you were surprised to find that there wasn't any... Palestinian restaurants or anything, right? Right. It was um, a couple of Lebanese restaurants, Lebanese and Syrian restaurants. Uh-huh. But there was nothing. In fact, people, when you, when they asked me where I'm from and I told them I'm from Palestine, they thought I'm saying Pakistan. <laughs> they didn't even know what Palestine meant. Uh-huh. So it, 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 people were very... Um, I don't want to say ignorant, uneducated yeah. about our culture and uh, where we are from and what kind of food we eat and what kind of people we are. In fact, I, um, I found uh, morally important for me, for my kids too, to um, tell, to show and tell, mm-hmm. you know, to... to People started coming to visit me when I I have kids, I have family, and um, I worked as uh, many jobs before. And uh, people smell the food, and they see me, and they ask me, and they get invited to my house. Is that the way your mom cooked? Yeah, that's the way. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, really. <laughs> and they would find it really strange. And um, in fact, my kids, Teachers at school, uh, they sent for food. I invited them once over, and then they started asking for the food. They started asking to be invited because uh-huh. they liked it so much. Well, I'd ask to be invited. <laughs> sure. It sounds like it's yummy. Um, your, your restaurant is called Tannerine. Yes, ma'am. And you are located where? I'm located at 76th Street and 3rd Avenue in Berridge, Brooklyn. Right. And as we talked, you you move a little ahead. Your first book was really a recounting of the traditional foods, Palestinian foods, right? Yeah, it was, you know, my, my like you see, want to say, like I said in the book, it was a journey in memory lane. You know, exactly. I, I went back to my childhood. Right. How we were raised up, but what we ate in our home, what but, our mom cooked. But you That's are, what I did. You are an adventurous book. cook, and uh, I am, and and yes, and you're curious about other cultures. So, what should people expect in this updated version of your na- native cuisine? Um, I'll tell you what. In fact, it's I'm still cooking our food. I'm still cooking, not, I mean, by our, I mean, traditionally, it's not traditional all the way, but I try to cope with what I'm surrounded with, because if you give a recipe to somebody and they cannot find the ingredients and uh, uh, the time to cope cooking a meal, so what's the use? You know, I mean... I I did what I wanted to do 
with the first book, which was introducing the food, the way where it came from, the way my mom cooked it. But I noticed, I realized that it's not that easy to go through a traditional meal. You do it once in a while. But for a family or for a college student that once they're working and they want to find just uh, one hour or whatever to find to cook a meal and it's nice to cook a meal and sit together and eat I try to put it together in an easier way where they can find all the ingredients in the stores around them and at the same time it's less time to prepare it so I put things together that is a mix of the Levantine area, it's all Middle Eastern. It's from, let's say, uh, I got some from a little bit of Moroccan food, a little bit of Egyptian, Syrian, Lebanese, all kinds of, all the recipes around me. I took some of every country, and I tried to, you know, put it together in a way where people are, you know, it's easy for them to cook it. It's easy for them to prepare it. Yeah, but you're open to Japanese ingredients and uh, Mexican ingredients. Of course. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I have five. I had all through my 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 uh, work at the restaurant, I had, like, um, many Mexican helpers mm-hmm. in Which my kitchen. Yeah. And no matter what, no matter what, you're going to be influenced because... I ask them to prepare meals sometimes, and I prepare meals for them sometimes. They liked our food. Of course, the, I mean, Mexican food is, is healthy, good food if you cook it the right way. Yes. And they cooked it, and I loved it. And uh, I don't always find the chili pepper that I use in Nazareth. So I use the poblano. I found it, you know, nice that and and tasty and um, you know why not i mean it's chili it's pepper and it tastes good and it's available and it can be done yeah. without changing the original taste all the way now you you mentioned um, that actually you had a, a long um illness that um, and, yeah. and, and you had a lot of time to think about things including the, the curative power of food so that um, a, a lot of these recipes you say are uh, and you have a little um, what do you call it a little key to which is vegetarian vegan or you tell how somebody can make a right. dish vegan uh, and so forth uh, gluten free right. and whatever um, but, you know, originally, I mean, my background is the same. I mean, Southern Italian, well, it's Sicilian, right. uh, is that naturally Mediterranean foods were not heavy on the meat like they are in America. You know? That's right. So that you really, you're just returning to a tradition. I'm returning. In fact, there is a, a recipe in my book. Um, it's called an excuse for kibbe, which <laughs> yeah, is, I saw that. <laughs> yeah, you know this is something our grandmas used to cook for us, and when we smelled it, we we escaped. 
Uh-huh. We didn't want to go in the house because it doesn't have any meat, you know. We were kids. <laughs> and we are visiting and we expected, you know, we, they couldn't feed 30 people all meat. Uh, no, of course So, not. you know, they had to do this once in a while. And this is a potato kibbe. Instead of meat, they put potato to hold it together, to hold the cracked wheat together. And it's healthy and it's uh, filling and it's full of nutrition. It's potato and cracked wheat. And then they drop that in home-cooked yogurt. And what I did is I used another um, uh, uh, sauce, which is the lentil, instead of the yogurt. I gave the choice of the both. Mm -hmm. And... um, that is being little creative. I mean, uh, uh, some people don't want to eat uh, dairy. Uh-huh. It is made in yogurt, so I tried it in uh, the lentil base, and it was delicious. So what I do is I the lentil is a recipe from our uh, um, uh, you know stews or soups, and the potato is too. I only put them together. You know, yeah. they do it with yogurt. Okay, we do it with yogurt, but we do it with something else. I gave an alternative, uh-huh. which what? is the lentil, and it came out delicious, and I tried it for a whole month in the restaurant. That's what I do with the new recipes. Yeah, that you I, said that. You test them out, and it seems people... Yeah, like and I test it, and I get opinions, and I go around the tables, and I ask people what they think. And I take every single criticism in consideration. Well, you know, some of your recipes are pretty heretical, like chocolate baklava. <laughs> it came out delicious. I am sure it is. No, but I mean, I, I had a, 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 a two friends. The one friend made baklava um, with chocolate chips, and, and our Greek friend was absolutely appalled. She thought that was the worst travesty. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not pleasant like that. You see, a customer of mine went to Turkey for a vacation, and she came back. We catered their honeymoon, and the food was a big thing. I mean, we catered, we catered their wedding, I'm sorry. And the food was a big thing, and she they, they sent us an email. Unbelievable, in fact, the same night of the wedding, thanking us for the food, that, how it oh, made wow. a big noise and everything. And, you know, when she came back from her honeymoon, she sent me an email asking me, if I can make chocolate baklava, uh-huh. because she tried it in Turkey, and she absolutely fell in love with it. Oh, wow. And um, you know what? I tried, and it didn't work from the first time, mm-hmm. and I didn't get it out on the table until it worked, and people really liked it. Now, if I want to eat baklava, honestly, I love chocolate, uh-huh. but... I like good baklava, too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so I will not take away the taste of nuts uh-huh. by covering it with chocolate. That's because true. what you get in baklava, it's the taste of nuts. And the G that's in it, that, that, the fat. That's the only, that's, that's what's in baklava. I mean, if you don't enjoy that, I don't know yeah, why yeah, we'll yeah, eat. Exactly. But that's another kind of sweet. But we called it chocolate baklava because a customer of mine ate it and loved it. Uh And I figured, why not another kind of baklava? I mean, if 
people like it, they can enjoy it. Honestly, I mean, I have... This is a matter of taste. Um, I mean, Turkey is uh, where baklava came from. I mean, Greek too, Greece yeah. too. Yeah. But Greece took it from Turkey too. They say Turkey took it from Greece or Greece took it from Turkey. I don't know. Yeah, well, there's always... I don't want to go back there. to history, yeah. but... <laughs> well, you, you have one dish in there. You say your, your daughter brought it back from Egypt. Yes, I've, I never heard of that. Kushari. Yeah, I've never heard of it. Kushari is the most popular street food in Egypt. That's what you say. Yeah, It is. There is a street in London called Kushari. Oh, no kidding. That's yeah. how popular it is. Wow. Yeah, it is very, uh, it's considered to be like, uh, it's lentil, rice, and uh, noodles, and hot sauce, and onion, and... Yeah, you don't think that's a bit over the top on carbohydrates? <laughs> they make it in layers, and they put it in a cup for you. <laughs> and you eat it, and you know why? You, I'll tell you why, because carbohydrates last. Where, where was your sentence about the seafood artichokes? Christmas seafood artichokes. Yeah. Uh, tell us what's in them. Okay. I'm going to tell you how this dish came about anyway. Yes. That's um, you know, a long time ago, like 25 years ago, 30 years ago, um, we owned a restaurant called Jambon. It oh, was yeah. in Milbury Street in the city. Oh, wow. Yeah, we were partners, in fact. And it was an Italian restaurant, of course, and it was in the court area. It was very popular at that time. And they used to make a dish there, a stuffed artichoke. Mm-hmm. Now, what they did is they opened the artichoke and they put inside breadcrumbs and garlic uh, and barely some seafood. Yeah, well, we did. My family never even we put Parmesan cheese breadcrumb in with olive oil. And, yeah, yeah, and stuffed them that yeah. way. So I figured, why not make a meal out of it instead of just having it as an appetizer? Um, I tried seafood with artichoke before. I put artichoke with salmon, and it came out delicious. Really. Uh, yeah, out of this world. I have that recipe in the book too. So. I decided to try it with, first I tried crab meat only, and I put crab meat in the mix, and then, knowing me, I, I you know, you get you have to get to know me to know how I do things, <laughs> then the crab turned into crab and shrimp, mm-hmm. then the, it's crab and shrimp and clams, you know, and, and I start adding things to it, then I do it gluten-free, then I do it with breadcrumbs I tried different ways mm-hmm. but I got this unbelievable artichoke once at Tenorine the vegetable guy brought it for me it was like only they call it uh, six size six eight that means in the whole box right. there's only mm-hmm. six to eight artichokes wow. um, it was like more than two pounds each unbelievable unbelievable looking really? artichoke and I love artichoke. I ate it all my life. My father used to plant it outside the house. I've never seen anything like this. So I said, that's it. This I'm not stuffing with, with uh, meat because usually we stuff it with meat. I have a recipe again for it in the first book. 
usually it's a meal. We stuff it, we take right. all the peel out and we stuff it with meat. So I remember the artichoke I used to have in Jambon. So right away I put things together and like I told you, things started adding up and I stuffed that artichoke and it came out such a beautiful looking flower. Oh, gorgeous. You can't believe it. So what I did is I brought it for my kids. My, my son called it Christmas, but we usually bring it Thanksgiving mm-hmm. because what we do in Thanksgiving, we have pictures even in the house for that. We serve first the artichoke and we wait for like an hour having a drink or something until we have the turkey after. We don't eat the turkey after right away. So the artichoke was such a beautiful piece to put on the table and munch on and talk, have conversation. I mean, you can spend the two hours eating the artichoke. Yeah, I know. That's huge. <laughs> and most of the time people get full and they don't even want to have turkey. <laughs> yeah. How, how long do you say it cooks? What, ma'am? How long to cook it? How long? Yeah. It doesn't take long because what happens is I steam it first and then I take the inside out. I see. Right? And then I stuff it and I put it back in the oven for like just 15 minutes. See, I never, I never time it right. I'm always, of course, I usually do it on top of the stove. It doesn't take long because... If you steam it, then it doesn't take long. If the seafood yeah. is cooked, it's nothing. It always takes longer to cook, even steam it, you know, for me, than I figure. Um, anyhow, it's a gorgeous dish. I, I wanted, I had a question. Did you, did I read this right? That you actually, um, you, you grill the, the rind of the watermelon for the salad? Well, not for the salad, but you grill. It's that watermelon, halloumi, and za'atar salad. Right. You say here that it's wonderful, the grilled rind. The grilled what? The uh, the, uh, watermelon rind. Is that a misprinter? Yeah, no, it's really nice. What what I do is I grill the white part. Oh, 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 oh. With some red on it. But it is delicious. Yeah, well, my grandmother used to make pickles out of the watermelon round. Right now, I have watermelon salad in my restaurant. Right. I made it this week. And watermelon salad, it's in fact, it's in my book, too. And it came from an idea that we all do it culturally. We eat dinner very light. We used to eat dinner in the Middle East, in, in Nazareth. Very, very light. We right. eat very heavy lunch. Yeah. And dinner usually is either sandwich or a soup. Or, most of the time in the summer, cheese and watermelon. Right. Or cheese and grapes and figs. Figs, grapes, watermelon, we eat with cheese. And usually it's a summer fruit. And it's very delicious with salty cheese. Goat cheese. Most of our dinner, we all, all our homes, we have jars of pickled goat cheese in our uh, pantry. Mostly every house does. And you take the cheese out. 
If you want to take the salt of it, you can. Otherwise, you leave it the way it is. With cold watermelon is the best <laughs> light dinner in the summer. That's oh, what sure. most of the people ate. Right. You know, and as as a snack, as an easy thing for you to handle in the summer, you don't want to eat anything heavy in the heat. And there is no air conditions, no, no nothing, you know. It's... Um, you have to sit outside and have watermelon and... and it sounds and good to me. So what I did is I put the watermelon and cheese into a salad and the grapes and the figs, some mint, a little... Tell me this I can't take from the Mexican, which is they put pepper flakes. They put um, a cayenne pepper on their watermelon. Oh, my... They don't eat watermelon just like that. Cold watermelon, they put on it a, a, a chili powder, and they gave, made me taste it, and it was delicious, with a little lemon. Uh-huh. So I put my way of eating dinner, which is the watermelon and the cheese, together with that, and it became a salad, yeah. and it's a delicious salad. Well, most of this book sounds just absolutely splendid. Um, Rabia Bishara, I mean, next time we're in Brooklyn, um, we'll stop in at Tannerine. And, yeah, and, and I'm going to try some of these recipes. And, boy, it's, it, you really have the most open, adventurous palate I've ever experienced. <laughs> <laughs> You'll try anything, won't you? Um, not really. <laughs> so, but anyhow, this book is just filled. Um, Peter, when he was reading it, said, boy, how did she get so much information into this book? So you, you did. So it's a, a really Thank worthwhile you. book. Again, listeners, it's called Levant, New Middle Eastern Cooking from Tannerine, which is, is uh, the restaurant in Brooklyn that we're talking about. Ralia, thank you again for talking to us. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And supply, please. Yes, indeed. Okay. And we'll probably be there in, in September or October. I love that. <laughs> thank thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, listeners. So there, so there you have it. Another, another week, another program. All I can forecast is you'll join us again, same time, same place, next year, because, or next, next week. week. Cause, and next year, cause, the year cause, after. <laughs> uh, no. We really messed that up, didn't we? No. I, don't we, think, we, I think it's time to say goodbye. Bye-bye.